And we are going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. <clears throat> As we look at this hope is our anchor. We, are, we have paused from uh, our verse-by-verse studies, and we are doing three Sunday morning messages in Hebrews. This is the second for Advent. With themes of hope and rest, uh, that's why we are here. And this particular passage is a passage that is so majestic and so beautiful. And my prayer is that it would minister hope and encouragement to you. Uh, Hebrews 6 we're looking at verses 13 through 20. Once you have the text, would you stand if you can, and let's read it together. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he, God, swore by himself, saying, Hebrews 6, 14, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. Those uh, quotations are from Genesis 22. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your living word. Thank you for all the precious people who have come into this place today, and thank you for those who have joined us via live stream. And we are hungry to hear from you. We are hungry for hope. And thank you for this beautiful image that hope is our anchor. And I pray that you would just be uh, permeating your people with hope this morning, a, a fresh new hope in Jesus Christ that will stabilize us in the stormy times in which we live, Father. And this same uh, issue was going on with this first century church, persecution, struggle, um, temptation to maybe fall away from the faith. And I pray that none of that would be true of us, that we would stand strong and firm because you are our anchor and our hope. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. In the early church, the three, first three centuries of the church, the cross was not the symbol for the church. Uh, scholars would say, historians, archaeologists would say that the cross really became the main symbol for Christianity after Constantine. And the main symbol that the Christian church celebrated for at least the first three centuries was an anchor. In fact, they found 66 pictures of anchors in the catacombs. The catacombs are the place where Christians hid from Roman persecution in the first three centuries of the church. And so the anchor became this symbol of hope. They found anchors in Christian cemeteries, um, uh, multiple, multiple pictures of anchors. And it became this idea of this stabilizing influence in the storm of life. If you have studied the book of Hebrews before, you know that this is an early Jewish church, Jewish Christian church that's struggling with 
the idea that Jesus is truly the Messiah and the persecution that has gone with it. The temple is still standing at this time, so many of those who had committed to Jesus as Messiah are now suffering persecution. And the temptation is to go back to the temple, to go back to the sacrificial system, and to maybe uh, walk away from a commitment to Jesus Christ. And in the earlier verses, in a very uh, difficult passage about whether or not you can lose your salvation, we won't go there. But the writer of Hebrews in verse 9, same chapter 6, says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God, Hebrews 6.10, is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." And then the one that's held up for us is an example in his journey of faith, one who held to the promises is a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham is not foreign to anyone who studied the Bible before, and he was named Abram, and then he became Abraham. Abram first shows up at the end of Genesis 11 and into Genesis 12, and he leaves his homeland. He leaves a place called Ur of the Chaldees. From Joshua 24, we learn that he came from a family of pagans. He was perhaps even an idol worshiper, or maybe he just got tired of the idol worship. But he moved away from that. He heard the call of God, and God said, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. I want you to leave your relatives. I want you to leave everything behind. And on a promise, Abraham went out. He walked out his journey of faith simply by a promise, by the word of God. The application to us is very similar, and this is why Abraham is held up to us, is because we are walking by a promise. We have a journey of faith that we have all begun in Jesus Christ, and we are walking by faith and not by sight. And that is very difficult. And that's all Abraham had, and he went to a place called Haran and suffered a couple losses. He lost his brother, and he lost his father. So he had a couple of deaths, and he still was walking according to a promise. And what God had promised is that he would have descendants that would outnumber the stars of the sky, if you could count them, or the sand of the seashore. God said, you're going to have a myriad of descendants, and you will be a blessing. And Abraham said to God, there's just one problem, Lord. Uh, My wife is barren. My wife cannot have children. And when the promise was made and then he was in Haran, he left Haran at 75 years old. They were getting a little older, you know, 75 still. You you got a lot of life ahead of you, but you're you're older, right? And you might be thinking about, Lord, are you going to introduce me to some power vitamins, me and my wife? I mean, how is this going to happen? And so Abraham... If you follow Abraham's journey, he is walking out this promise. He has a painful separation from Lot, then he has to go rescue Lot. And in Genesis 15, he has a question for God. He says, God, how is this going to happen? I don't have an heir from my body. There's somebody in my household who's going to be my heir. And God said, no, one from your own body is going to be your heir. 
And as time went on, a child, a miracle child was born. And his name, you remember, was Isaac or Isaac. And his name means laughter. Made me think of Merry Christmas, right? And he was the miracle child, the child of promise. He made people laugh. And I'm talking about laugh in the best sense of the word. Like, no way. Anyway, there he is. The child of promise had come. That doesn't mean that Abraham and Sarah didn't make their mistakes. They made a mistake in uh, Abraham sleeping with Hagar and Ishmael being produced. And that's a reminder to us that sometimes it's hard to wait. Abraham had to wait 25 years from the time God spoke to the promise to the fulfillment. And for some of us, we can't wait 25 minutes. Amen? Sometimes we... You know, the Lord says, wait on me, wait on me. And we're like, no, Lord, it has to happen now. We're in an instant society. I want things to happen now. I'll give you this box where you can work, Lord. This is your time frame. It's got to happen by Friday, and it's Thursday afternoon. That's pretty much how we operate, right? But Abraham had to wait, and he had to wait, and he had to wait. And he was waiting on a promise from God. And God made the promise to Abraham, 13, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, God is the God of truth. It is impossible for God to lie. That's verse 18. It is impossible. So every promise that God has made is true because his nature is truth. He cannot lie. Sometimes people say, Are there, is there something that God can't do? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Answer that one, Christian. Well, here's one thing I do know. It's impossible for God to lie. Now think about it. Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus said there is a heaven. It's impossible for God to lie. Jesus said, there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. It is impossible for God to lie. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. It is impossible for God to lie. Every word of God is tested and sure and true. And that's what these Hebrew believers needed to hear because they were suffering persecution. Some of them were losing property. They were losing family members, didn't want to deal with them anymore. They were under the threat of persecution. They were, they were facing real trials and real life. And 2020 has been one of those years, right, that we all want to quickly forget. But one thing that it has done is perhaps it's challenged your faith like maybe never before. What do you believe why do you believe it? And are you willing to fight for it? Do you believe that it is impossible for God to lie? Do you believe that the promises in Jesus Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God? If you do, then your faith is worth fighting for. But here's the thing. Your faith is going to be tested. And this is something that happened with Abraham. And these quotations if you'll notice, God, made, God swore, and you know, uh, in the ancient world, what the Jews would do is they would say, as the Lord lives, that was a, a way of making an oath. Today, in a court of law, we might say, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so 
help me God. But God can swear by no one higher than himself because uh, he's God. So he can't say, I swear to me. <laughs> now we, we might do that as people. We might do that, but that is to verify truth, right? And if someone has to do a bunch of maneuvering to assure their truth, uh, we start to have questions about those people. In fact, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It used to be that a handshake was enough. Now, think with me. How much time and energy is spent on this planet, resources, time and energy to discover who's actually telling the truth? Think about that one for a second. How much time has been wasted in the history of the world trying to find out who actually is not a liar? And here's the truth of the matter. All men are liars. In fact, in Psalm 12, the psalmist says, David says, Oh God, help, paraphrasing, because all men are liars. They are double-tongued. It's difficult to know what the truth is. Look what our country is going through right now trying to find out what's the reality of an election. What really happened here? And my prayer is, Lord, since you do not delight in unjust scales, I think that's Proverbs chapter 11, I pray that you would bring everything to light, no matter where the falsehood is, that you would uncover it and reveal it. It is sad to me, sad that our country operates this way. And it's not just our country. There, there's countries where people for decades, perhaps their whole lifetime, never had a, fear, a fair election. Never had an opportunity for their voice to be heard. Brethren, please hear what I'm about to say. Don't take for granted what you have. Please be praying for our country. Now here's this man, Abraham, and God has made an oath. Why would God make an oath if it's impossible for God to lie? Well, the oath was, he swore by himself, 14, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, Abraham, notice, obtained the promise. But he had to wait, and it was a journey. And I mentioned to you that the quotations from, come from Genesis 22. Let's turn over there, and let's look at this majestic passage together, since this is where the writer of Hebrews anchors his thoughts. Genesis 22. And it begins this way. Now, it came about after these things, Genesis 22, 1, and that's the miracle birth of Isaac and uh, the Mocking of Ishmael, the weaning party, sending away Hagar, some time has passed. Now, it came about after these things that God, what did he do? He tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Why did God test Abraham? The word test means to put to the proof. And this is a word in, in the Greek New Testament Parazzo, it's a morally neutral word, but whether the testing is for good or evil purposes depends on the intent of the one giving the test. 
Whenever God tests us, what do you think he's up to? He tests us to perfect us. If you don't have a faith that is tested, then you won't have a faith that is perfected. If your faith never is challenged in the fire of life, you will never know what you're made of. You'll never know why you believe what you believe. And God tested Abraham. And by the way, the Hebrew church that is going through their trials right now that Hebrews 6 is written to, they're going through a test too. And I would imagine that you are as well. You've probably been through multiple tests this year. Maybe it's tested your mettle like never before. And you might be saying, God, why do you do this? Why do you allow us to go through the stuff we go through? Because God wants to perfect his people. He wants to reveal a faith that is more pure than gold. When I taught this passage some years ago, I said that God's test of Abraham, it was a test for Abraham, but it was God's reality. Because you all know the story, God is going to stop Abraham. The angel of the Lord is going to stop him. But 2,000 years later, another father would give his son on that same mountain. And what would be a test for Abraham would be a reality for God. Everybody with me? See, God stopped Abraham's hand, but God did not stop his hand to kill his one and only son. And so we have been through a hard year. And Genesis 22 reveals that God said to this man that he had called, who had experienced this miracle child, now take your son, your only son, to whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Why did God do this? Why would he tell him to kill the promise, to kill laughter? Do you know that a burnt offering, the way that they would do a burnt offering, and I don't want to gross you out this morning, but they would dismember the victim, and burn the victim until there was only ashes. That's essentially what God has asked Abraham to do to this child. Now, I know a lot of you have suffered loss even this year, and some of you have lost a loved one, and you start asking questions about how is God going to resurrect my loved one if essentially their body has become ashes? Is, is God's power enough to do such a thing? Can he raise someone from the ash heap of destruction? What if they were eaten by a shark, blown up in a war? <laughs> what if they died 2,500 years ago? God has no problem resurrecting the dead. Why do anything, any of you think it incredible, Acts 26, verse 8, that God raises the dead? God spoke the universe into existence. He said, let there be light, and light was. He can raise the dead. And Abraham is now asked to kill this miracle child through whom his descendants would be called. It makes no sense. And he's called to go to a place called Moriah. And Moriah is the mount where the temple sat. 
Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. Now, Abraham doesn't know this. He's walking by faith and not by sight. We read the story and we know the ending, but you have to remember, Abraham doesn't know the ending. He's just trying to be obedient to God. And so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him, Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. He looked. He pondered. If you've ever seen this area of the world, it's quite interesting to consider because this is an area called Calvary, or we also know it as Golgotha. And if you've ever seen a, seen a picture where they think Jesus was crucified within the stone backdrop where they would crucify people on the road is something that looks like a skeleton. We don't know how long it's been there, but it is, is it possible that when Abraham journeyed to Moriah and he saw the place in the distance, he saw that symbol of death there. And he pondered and he looked. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will, what will we do? We will worship and return to you. God knew that this particular son of, uh, Abraham knew that this particular son of his must live. Even if he has to kill him, he must rise from the dead. Now hold your place in Genesis 22 and turn over to Hebrews 11. Now Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith and Abraham, I think, has the most attention paid to his journey of faith. Hebrews 11, and let's take a peek of what is said about Abraham and each person that's introduced in this great chapter, it says, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's the setting or the context. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. I want you to know something. The scene of Genesis 22 is not about the cruelty of God. It's about the love of God. Genesis 22 is not about God asking someone to do something so unimaginably cruel. The, the terrible blade, the reality of what God was asking him to do. God was allowing Abraham to act out the gospel. It was a prophetic promise. It was a prophetic call. Do you know that sometimes when you're tested... It has nothing to do with you at all. What? Isn't everything in my faith journey about me? No, it's not. I know the fastest selling books in the evangelical Christian world are about me and my life. But you know what? Sometimes God's doing something on another plane that has nothing to do with you. It may have to do with the gospel. It may have to do with you living the gospel in front of someone who's wondering if it's true. Amen? And so, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered, Abraham did, he accounted that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which also he received him, Isaac, back as a type a type of what? The 
Greek word parabole is a type of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Abraham didn't know everything, but here's what he did know. He knew if God asked him to kill the boy, he would live again. And he was acting out the reality of crucifixion and resurrection. Imagine this, 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And Jesus said to religious leaders, he was in conflict with them in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And they said, what are you talking about? You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham sprang into existence, I am. And they took up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. Abraham saw the gospel. He saw the reality of the coming Messiah, the ultimate promised child. And he believed. What would you have done? Would you have saddled up your donkey early in the morning? Would you have gone to the place? Would you have said, Lord, I don't get it, but I know enough about you that I'm going to honor you. Back to Genesis chapter 22. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, verse 6. He laid it on his son Isaac. Uh, This is a type of the cross. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so the two of them walked on together. The steep climb was too much for the donkey, so the two of them walked up together. Significantly, the Genesis Rabbah, a pre-Christian Jewish midrash, commented that Isaac, with the wood on his back, was like a condemned man carrying his own cross. But Abraham believes in the resurrection, and so the two walk on. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, Dad, (laughs) he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? There's only one thing missing. Where's the lamb? You think Isaac's starting to get a notion here that... uh, Dad might be withholding some critical information from him. Do you remember when Mary, uh, to honor the days of her purification, went into the temple and they could not afford a lamb, so they purchased the two turtle doves? Do you know when she went into the temple that day, what she didn't realize is that she was holding in her arms her lamb. And he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Literally, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide. In Abraham's case, says F.W. Grant, he spared that father's heart, Abraham, a pang which he would not spare his own. And then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there. You know, the only ground that Abraham ever purchased for himself was a burial ground. He was told that the whole land was his. He would go on walkabout. Everywhere he looked, the land was his, but he never realized it in his lifetime because he was looking for another land whose architect and builder is God. 
And so Abraham now builds an altar. That's the only thing you see Abraham building in his lifetime is altars. He arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, Abraham's an old dude. And Isaac, maybe a late teenager, maybe in his 20s, would you have laid down on the wood? <laughs> now, the picture's becoming quite clear, is it not? Uh, son, would you lay down? Uh, Dad, what's, what's that for? Dad, <laughs> would you notice the submission of the son? It's a picture of the gospel. He submits to his father, though he could easily have run away. He could easily have overpowered probably his dad. But he submits, and it reminds me of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so he submits to the Father. He lays down, if you will, on the cross. And Abraham stretched out his hand, I'm sure with agony and pain, probably nausea. He took the knife to slay his son. Can you imagine the moment? Can you imagine the drama? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Most scholars believe that's Jesus himself. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven before he was born in Bethlehem, 2,000 years before, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's, am it's amazing to know that this one who calls out from heaven to stop this tragic scene, 2,000 years later, the knife, if you will, would plunge into him. Because it was God's will. And Abraham raised his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket, by his horns. The ram was caught, notice Bible students, behind him. Had he passed the provision? Was he so caught up in the moment that he didn't realize that there was a provision right there? Perhaps. And maybe that's us too. Maybe sometimes we walk right past God's provisions in our life. They're behind us. He's already revealed something, but we, we miss it because we're so caught up in what's going on in a given moment. It was behind him. He was caught there. And notice, he offered him up for a burnt offering. Notice this, Bible students, in the place of his son. This is the great idea of the vicarious atonement of Christ. And Abraham called on the name of the Lord, called uh, the name of that place the Lord will provide. You, can you imagine how relieved he was? Thank you, Lord. You have provided, and it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, this is prophetic. It will be provided because 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ would die on that holy ground. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, now here's our verses in Hebrews 6. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. This is a reiteration of the promise. And as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. 
There is nothing indeed which God will not do for a man who dares to step out in what seems to be a mist, says Meyer, though as he puts out his foot, he finds a rock beneath him. Abraham had to release Isaac and grab hold of God. And it's been said that the Christian life, you have to hold things loosely because this life is so unpredictable. And it can be challenging. And when you're confused and you don't know what to do and you're trying to walk in obedience to God and then something like this happens in your life, you're like, God, what are you doing? But Abraham had to say, Lord, I'm going to release this child of promise. He was a miracle you did anyway. It was your miracle. It's your promise. It's your word. You've taken this oath, so I'm going to release the child to you and I'm going to place my faith in your hand. This is one of the toughest things in life because if anyone is like me, we got control issues. Anybody out there got control issues? Anybody want to confess it? It's good for the soul. Like control. But Abraham had to trust God. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God swore by himself. You know, God is the God of truth, so his word is enough. But he swore, back to Hebrews chapter 6, for one reason. Not that he needed to. For men, Hebrews 6.16, swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. Now, in in the ancient world, if you said, as the Lord lives, I promise to do this, people would say, oh, man, this guy is serious. Today, if someone says, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's grave, you're like, eh. Politicians usually are the exception, right? They're more believable than, that's a joke. Men, women, they're not reliable for the most part. And I want to tell you something. This is an application point for you, brethren. Please hear what I'm going to say. When you make a promise, let's let's take a marriage covenant. You say, I'm going to love this person until death do we part. You put a promise into an uncertain future and you say, this one thing is reliable. If God gives me another 20 years, I will be here. You have my word. See, promises or covenants put something that is certain in an uncertain future. This is what God has done for us. He's saying, I want you to trust me, and I know life is unpredictable, and I know you don't see every dot, and you can't put it all together, but I want you to know something. I've put, in certain, I've put certainty in the future for you. I will be true to my word, no matter what. You can take it to the bank. And when you and I act in covenant, when we say, look, I will love you, honey, until death do we part. I'm going to be here, God willing. I'm not going anywhere. You put certainty in an uncertain future. Do you know why people are sick in our world? Do you know what probably is the cause of most of our ailments in terms of our mental health? 
It's because we don't know what to rely on. We don't know who's telling the truth. We don't know if someone's actually going to leave us or forsake us. We don't know who's reliable, who's dependable, who's telling the truth. God says, here's what you can know. I have sworn by myself. And I did it so that something could happen to you. See, God, 17, in the same way as men swear, but God much higher, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. You are saved, you're going to heaven. He interposed it with an oath. God, this is a strong word, he desired to show the heirs, that's you and me, the unchangeableness of his purpose and his promise. That's why the oath is there. So that by two unchangeable things, that is God's nature, he cannot lie, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. God wants you to be encouraged, brethren, to take hold of the hope that is set before us. God did it so that you would be encouraged. God does not want you to be discouraged. Sometimes you get the notion in the evangelical church that people think that God wants them to walk around discouraged. Oh, it's not much of a Christian walk, but it's the only one I've got. Little Eeyore there for you. No. God wants you to be filled with courage. In courage. Later, the writer of Hebrews would say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christian, be encouraged. Heaven is real. God's not going anywhere. He ain't going to fall out of heaven. He's not getting off of his throne. And you and I will be in the kingdom of God forever and ever. People who you've lost, you've not lost them. They're with the Lord if they're Christians. And you will be together with them. A great reunion day is coming. You can take it to the bank because he who promised is faithful and he is true. And he wanted you and I to know. And so he said, look, I'm going to swear by myself just to make sure my people have strong encouragement. And they can take hold. Look at 18, end of the verse. Take hold of the hope set before us. Take hold of it. Have you let it go because of circumstances? Have you said, you know what? I don't know if I can hope anymore. I'm, I'm just going to let go of it. No, 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 no. Take hold of it. Final two verses. Because this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now, I'm not sure many of you are involved in sailing or boats, but what, what does an anchor do? If you throw an anchor down, it is to keep your ship stable, especially in a storm. And the hope that we have is our anchor. It's not up there right now, but it's our anchor. What, what else are you anchored to? What other anchors would you throw into the depths of the sea? Have you tried multiple anchors? 
found which ones are reliable and which ones are not. This hope we have as an anchor. That's the image. It's an anchor of the soul. Notice it's to stabilize our souls, our most important part of us. A hope that is what? It's both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. And when the temple was standing, there was a veil, a very thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. And behind the curtain was a single piece of furniture known as the Ark of the Covenant, represented God's presence. And only one man could go behind the curtain, and that only once a year, and it was the high priest from the Aaronic priesthood. But there was a problem with high priests. High priests lived and died. And by the way, they had to make sure they were right before they ventured in behind the curtain. Because if you weren't right, you could die right on the spot. And when Jesus was on the cross, one of the miracles that occurred from or in the temple but related to the cross was the, te- the curtain of the temple that separated these two places was torn, remember, from top to bottom, indicating access. And here's where it moves into the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not have the ironic priesthood because he cannot die. He has something called the Melchizedek priesthood, which is a priesthood forever. And this mysterious guy shows up in Genesis 14 after the battle and going to get Lot, his nephew. He was a lot of trouble. It's true. And he shows up right there and he gives Abraham bread and wine and he blesses Abraham. And there's this whole theme of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. But here's the point. Jesus holds the Melchizedek priesthood, which is an eternal forever priesthood. He provides access eternally into the holy of holies, the place that no one could go save the high priest. Now we have access there forever. Nothing will ever change that. Jesus is there. He's entered as a forerunner. He's gone ahead of us, 20, having become a high priest forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. Turn over to Hebrews 1 and we're done. Hebrews chapter 1 opens with these words. God, Hebrews 1.1, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is there behind the veil. He's prepared a place for us. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again And receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He's there. And every time a saint struggles through 
a test of faith. He's encouraging and even praying for us. Hebrews 7, I think it's verse 25. He's interceding for his people as our great high priest. He's saying you can make it, you can go on. Keep walking by faith and not by sight. And when we die, we're going to end up in a place where Jesus is forever the high priest. He's prepared a place. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? What an awesome blessing to know Jesus has prepared a place for us.